Thank you so much, choir. If you have a copy of God's Word, please take it and turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, we're going to be in verses 22 through chapter 2, verse 3 this morning. We've been looking at the book of 1 Peter for several weeks now, and what we've discovered is that the book of 1 Peter is a manual for aliens. It's a manual, it's a guide for people who recognize that this world is not their home. What I would remind you of is if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you know Christ as your Savior and your Lord, you indeed are an alien and a pilgrim. This world is not your home, and because this world is not your home, you relate differently to the world. You don't exist to be a consumer who just receives or gets. You as an alien and pilgrim exist to give the love and the message of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. And so what Peter's been doing is he's been showing us what does it look like to live like that. Last week we saw that Peter introduced this theme where he's going to show us some of the marks or characteristics of an alien. And it's as if Peter's saying, you and I are called to be who we are. If we indeed are aliens, what does it mean to live like it? I used the illustration last week that there was often the case that I would leave home in the morning for school and my parents would say, you're a plumly, act like it. And what Peter's saying to us this morning is if you're an alien, act like it. Let me show you what it looks like to live like an alien. Last week, he talked about three things that were indicative of somebody who's an alien. He talked about placing our hope in Christ He talked about living in holiness, cultivating a holy life. And he talked about living in awe and thankfulness for the grace that God's given us. Today, he's going to unpack two more dimensions of what it means to live like an alien and pilgrim in this world. With your Bibles open to 1 Peter 1, verse 22, would you please stand to your feet as we honor the reading of God's word together as a family? 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, all the way to chapter 2, verse 3. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, for All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So, put away all malice, and all deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. And like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. This is the word of the Lord. This is God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word to us. Would you pray with me, please, church? God, we thank you and we give you praise for your word and how it speaks to us. We do pray in these moments that you would remove distractions and you would open our minds to hear what you have to say to us. God, would you help us as we read your word, not just to be hearers, but to be doers. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. You can be seated. 
Two things Peter's going to talk, tell us this morning as far as being who we are. What does it mean to be who we are? Number one, he's going to tell us that we need to be who we are by loving one another. Loving one another. If you look at verse 22, he says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Now, before we get into the actual command of loving one another, we have to understand how Peter sets this up, because he frames this in a very particular way that he wants us to understand, makes a foundation for the love he calls us to. And here's the foundation Peter sets in these verses. He wants us to understand that as followers of Jesus Christ, something has happened to us. If you know Jesus Christ, something very unique specific, and we would go so far as to say miraculous, has happened to you. There are two words that Peter uses to describe the same reality. He says in verse 22, your souls have been purified, and in verse 23, you have been born again. And what Peter is trying to say is in both of those ideas, there's been a change within you that's miraculous, If you know Christ as Savior and Lord, you've been cleansed in such a way, you've been given new life, that there's a change going on inside you right now from the inside out. When Peter talks about being born again and being cleansed, these are actually ideas that he's talked about earlier in chapter 1, and I'll just sum them up by saying this way. When Peter says we've been born again, he's saying that we have to have a second birth to counteract the effects of the first birth. That we need a spiritual birth to counteract the effects of our physical birth. I'm just curious how many of you in here were born. Please raise your hand. Okay, just making sure we're out there that you're with me at the beginning of the message, okay? If you've been born, you were born with a deception over your eyes and the eyes of your heart that told you that the world revolves around you. You were born into a deception that told you that you're the main character of your own story, And what Peter's saying is what's got to happen in our lives if we're going to really know the truth is the grace of God opens our eyes to see who we really are, to see who God really is. And so this born again, this uh, cleansing that happens from the inside out is where God peels back this deception and he shows us the truth. He redeems us from the impact of our sinful ways and brings us into forgiveness and grace. But what's interesting about this section is Peter takes those ideas he's already been talking about, purification and being born again, and he develops them. He develops them in a unique way by telling us how this happens. Notice verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. Then skip down to verse 23, same kind of theme. Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. What Peter's saying is the way that we've been cleansed, the way that we've been born again, is through the truth of God's word. The word of God is what God uses to open our eyes to see the truth. The Bible that you are holding either on your phone or your tablet or in physical copy in front of you is the means through which God brings the gospel to you, the truth that you have a problem and that God is the solution in Jesus Christ. 
The Bible is the tool that God uses to bring that to you, to open your eyes to see the truth for the very first time. Yesterday, I was watching a YouTube video by National Geographic about a nonprofit organization called 202020. And this nonprofit organization exists to provide surgeries and procedures for people that can't afford it, especially relating to people that have problems with their eyes. And so the video that National Geographic put on YouTube was them tracking this nonprofit organization as they went into this remote and very poor Indian village, the country of India. And as the video progresses, they, they zero in on this family that has two daughters. They look to be about seven or five. And uh, they have been blind since birth. Both daughters, seven-year-old and the five-year-old, were blind at birth, and they've not been able to see their entire lives. But it's been discovered through their um, initial kind of screening that these two girls could see if they had a very expensive procedure, a very expensive surgery. And so the National Geographic video, it's about four minutes, is them following this family from their remote village in India all the way to this doctor where they're having the surgery performed. And then there's that pivotal moment, right, where they've, they've got the bandage around them and the, the patches over their eyes, and the doctor begins to remove the bandages. And the doctor takes off that patch over one of the girl's eyes for the first time, and she opens her eyes, and she almost kind of jumps back because she's so startled by what she's seeing. Because for the first time in her seven or eight years, she's seeing the face of her mother, who she's heard. She's seeing sounds that she's always heard. She's seeing what corresponds to those. For the first time, she's seeing the world as it really, really is. And then they move to the other little girl, and she has the same response. The bandages come off. They remove the patches from her eyes. And this smile that just lights up the room comes all over her face because she's seeing for the very first time. Church family. The word of God, the gospel, is what God uses to take the blinders off of our eyes so we can see for the very first time. That's what the word of God does. That's what it means to be born again, to be purified. It's that I see that actually I'm not the main character. Actually, you're not the main character. What God allows me to see through his word and the gospel is that he's the main character. I'm a supporting character. I exist to worship and praise him. And he cleanses me with his truth from the effects of my sin, from the penalty of my sin, and he puts my feet on a solid rock and he forgives me. The word of God is what God uses to purify and to change me from within. Peter gives this some further context by explaining that this is not just a New Testament idea. I don't know if you noticed in your Bibles, in verse 24. Notice most of your Bibles will list verses 24 and 25 in a different way, kind of how it's set up with the prose, because this is a quotation from the book of Isaiah. Verses 24 and 25 are Peter quoting Isaiah, if you're taking notes, chapter 40, verses 6 and 8. And what this quote refers to is the fact that while human kingdoms rise and fall, they are similar to grass and flowers. Human kingdoms, the authority of humanity, the best that we can offer is like grass. It, it looks good for a while, like a flower, it blooms for a while, but eventually it fades, it falls. 
And Peter says, different than the human kingdoms of this world and the human authority of this world, God's word, God's gospel remains forever. It never changes. We can always trust it. I was at a a training session yesterday where the speaker mentioned that every single epic in history, every season, every era of human history, there have been people that have said Christianity will be stamped out, it will be gone the next generation. Voltaire famously said that there would only be one Bible in the next series of life, and it would be in a museum someplace, only to find that his home later was turned into a printing press for Bibles. The point is, the Word of God, the Gospel, continues. God's Word is something we can trust because it remains forever. Now, here's what's really cool about this quote. This quote in Isaiah is what Isaiah was communicating to the people as they were going into Babylonian exile. Peter ingeniously, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is taking a quote from the Old Testament that was applying to exiles and aliens who were going into exile because of their disobedience, and he's now redeploying it for modern-day aliens and pilgrims who are here by, not disobedience, but by design. Peter wants to give you and I the same hope, the same peace that those Jewish and Israel exiles were having as they were going into their exile. This is why he says, verse 25, this word is the good news that was preached to you. You're free. This world is not your home. The grace that Jesus Christ has given you has not only saved you from something, it saved you for something, a brand new life. Now here's the point. Why is he giving us all this as context? Because he wants us to see that because of what we've been given, Because of what's happened to us through the word of God, we can and should love one another. You see, the grace that God has given us has not only commanded us to love one another, but it's made us able to love one another. Now, what does it mean to love one another? Love is a very confusing term that we as a church need to fight hard to redeem today. Love is is setting your affections on someone or something in such a way that you put their needs ahead of your own. Love is a setting of your affections on a person, in this case, fellow believers, in such a way that I put that person's needs ahead of my own. The reason I believe it starts with the believers is because of what Peter says in verse 22. Look back in your Bibles. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Now this nevertheless applies to our relationships outside the church, outside this faith family. But it should especially start here. That we love one another. That we put other people's needs and interests ahead of our own. Now here's the challenge that we've just got to be realistic about. Some people are hard to love. Some personality types I find challenging. Now, don't look at me so piously like that, because all of you have personality types you find challenging to love as well. 
Not only that, there are certain situations we find ourselves in, certain contexts that are particularly stressful where it's difficult to love one another. Yesterday, we went to a pumpkin patch in Jefferson City, and we're driving back one big happy family, everybody smiling and getting along, and about Eldon, just, just Jeff City side of Eldon, my daughter decides, I think I'd like to scream to the top of my lungs for 30 minutes. <laughs> and so Paige let loose her soprano vocals, and from Eldon all the way to Four Seasons, she screamed to the top of her lungs. Now, I got to tell you, I'm just going to be candid and honest, that's not an easy moment to love everybody in that car. Shelly and I can be a little snappy, right? Why didn't we feed her before we left? What are we going to do? How is she going to stop crying? And then Noah and Seth are trying to help, right? You ever had moments like that, parents, where you're going, please, just, just stop helping. Don't, we don't need any more help here. But they're trying to help in the best way they can, and it's just a very stressful situation. And so... It's hard, not only personality types, but there are certain situations where we find ourselves where it's really hard to put the needs and the interests of others ahead of our own. Now, here's the key that we've got to see. The way to love difficult people, the way to sustainably love the people God has put in our lives is not to try to find all the redeemable qualities in that person. The way that you and I fall more in love with people is by falling more in love with Jesus Christ. Let me explain what I mean by that. The way that I'll sustainably love you is by continuing to be thankful for the way Jesus has loved me. You see, a lot of times, I think a lot of times we try to solve vertical problems with horizontal solutions. It's often the case that I'll have people that are difficult to love in my life, and my first response may be to say, well, let me, let me get my paper out and list all the wonderful things about this person. We talk about their personality, and I start writing, and I go, I've got like one and a half things here. Because some people are, are not nice. And I'm not saying that in a mean way. I'm just saying sin and this world creates people that are sometimes very challenging to love. They've been sinned against. They've got problems or backgrounds or family experiences that have hardened them and made them hard to love. How do you love people like that? It's not by finding all the redeemable qualities within that person. It's by saying, I've been born again. I've been purified by the truth of God's word. Look at what God has done for me. God has loved me and loves me and will keep on loving me despite my brokenness, despite my sin, despite my weakness and failings. Lord, would you help me love that person like you've loved me? But if we try to solve a vertical problem with horizontal solutions, I just got to tell you, it will often be the case that we will come up short finding reasons to love some of the people that God's put in our lives. You see, the reason we have a hard time loving people in our lives as Christians is because we've forgotten who we are. It's not because we haven't found enough redeemable things in that person. It's because I've forgotten what God has done for me. 
So let me ask you a question, okay? Is there a person in your life right now you are having a hard time loving? Some of you can find that person quickly. It's an employer. It's a fellow employee. Maybe even it's a member of your family. You know what I found about Sundays? For whatever reason, Sundays are the day that it's hardest for my family. Just this morning, Shelly and I were talking about something. Am I the only one that doesn't always see eye to eye with my spouse on every decision? No, I don't, I, don't, I don't think that I am. I'll answer that question. And, you know, Sunday morning is that morning where you're in the car and everybody's fighting and you're shouting at each other and you're trying to get... And then you open the door of the church and, hello, everyone! It's so great to be here. Praise God! You know, I, I think it's very easy to live that life that way. And the reality is... My primary, when I read this this week and I was thinking about this, one of the first places my mind went for application was the relationship between husbands and wives. Because I got to tell you, one of the the dangers um, and one of the liabilities with not always seeing eye to eye in every decision in marriage is that we know each other well enough to know where our weak spots are. I know Shelly's weak spots and she knows mine. That's part of vulnerability. That's part of being in a close relationship, and it is so easy with our words to hurt one another. And so when I read this this week, one of the ways I specifically want to encourage the couples in this room this morning is to not start with your husband or your wife when it comes to relational problems, but to start with your relationship with Jesus Christ. Don't start here. You can't fix all the problems in your marriage. You can't fix all the problems in your family. But God can. And some of the reason I think we're having a hard time loving our spouses is because we've forgotten who we are. Well, well, wait a minute, Spencer, but if I love him like that and I'm serving him like that, who's going to take care of me? I know that's what you're thinking. Because that's what we go to, right? If I serve that person and they're selfish, they're just going to run over me. They're just going to take advantage of me. Can I tell you something? If you decide to love that person sacrificially despite their misgivings, despite their brokenness, do you know who's going to take care of you? God will take care of you. Now listen very carefully. I'm not advocating any kind of abuse. I'm not advocating uh, laying down to somebody who's Uh, Being abusive in some kind of relationship, that's another, that's a horse of another color. But I'm talking about in the day-to-day weeds of life, sacrificially loving our spouses is what God calls us to do. Can I talk to the men in the room for a moment? Men, this starts with us. We we set the, the thermometer of the culture of our homes. We set that, guys. How are we doing sacrificially loving our spouses? Don't start here. Start here. God, remind me in the moment how much you love me. Would you help me love Shelly like that today? How about brothers and sisters in the room? Oh, man. 
Those of you that have a brother or sister, some of my fights with my brother were epic. Not proud of those. I've often reflected on my relationship with my brother and thought, man, I wish I had redeemed more of that time with him. I wish we would have had more positive experiences. Brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters in your homes, are you, are you looking for ways to sacrificially put the needs of the other people in your home ahead of your own? What about the church? What about in the body of Christ here at Riverview, this faith family? Are there people that you avoid? Are there people that you find difficult to be around that you know, I need to sacrificially love them the way the Christ of the church? Not because they deserve it. They probably don't. But because God loves me that way, if you only show love to people you think that deserve it, you'll never love anybody sustainably. You'll never love anybody really for the long term. How do we love people the way that God calls us to love them? It's by looking first to him and the way he's loved us and saying, God, you got to help me. you got to help me love some of these people that I find difficult to love. By the way, some of us who think everybody else is difficult to love may not be the easiest to love ourselves. Leading that way helps people reciprocate that in our lives. What does it mean to be who we are? It means to love one another. Number two, we're to be who we are by pursuing Christ. Look at verse one of chapter two. It says, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. And like newborn babies or infants, long for the pure spiritual milk. Now, this is classic Peter. This is classic Paul. This is what a lot of your New Testament writers do, right? The formula is, here's what you need to stop doing. (coughs) Stop doing this and start doing this. What does he say we should stop doing? Put away or put off. Those of you taking notes might write on Ephesians 4 next to this because it's similar to putting off and putting on that Paul talks about. But he says, put away sin. And he uses the word malice to try to describe kind of sin in a comprehensive fashion. Because here's what sin basically is. Sin is a manipulation of good things for evil. At a basic level, sin is taking things that God created that are good and turning them into selfish purposes. Things that are be used for our own gratification. So money, for example... Money can be something that God can use in an incredible way to be a blessing to people. It can be something God uses to encourage one another. But money can also, in the hands of sin, be used to be an idol that we worship. Same thing with sex. Sex is something God made to happen within the confines of marriage. It's good. It's not scary. It's something good that God made. But what happens to our culture is it turns it and it makes it about selfish gratification. The point is, in all of these words, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander, it's taking things that God meant for good and turning them to evil. And he says, what you've got to do instead of doing those things, look at verse 2, is like a newborn baby long for pure spiritual milk. Now, what is Peter talking about here? He uses the baby analogy to remind us that we don't just need God's grace when we're first born into the kingdom. We need God's grace every single day. Right? So it would be odd 
if a baby was born and we said, great, let's feed the baby for the first week and then they're on their own. How well would that work? Would it work? No. Because a human being needs nourishment every single day. And what, Paul, what Peter's saying is we're to have a longing for grace, not just when we first enter a relationship with God, but we're to have a longing for grace every single day. One of the big takeaways I want you to have for this passage of Scripture this morning is to get rid of this idea that grace and forgiveness is something I just need when I first come to Christ. That, that, that I need to get salvation, I need to be forgiven of my sins, and then I'm on my own. Whereas what the Bible consistently teaches is actually, you need not only grace at the beginning when you first are born again, in this second spiritual birth we've been talking about, but you actually need grace every single day to grow in your relationship with God. Here's what Paul's saying, Peter's saying, when we long for this grace... Notice what happens, the result, the end of verse 2, that by it you may grow up into salvation. I want to clarify something that Peter's not saying. Peter's not saying that by longing for grace that we somehow inch our way closer to God as Christians. I think sometimes we have this wrong idea that God's over here, And when we become Christians, we get closer to God, but it's up to us the rest of our lives to kind of work our way back to where God is. Remember this, when you became a Christian, you got as close to God as you're ever going to be. He forgave you of everything, past, present, and future. What I think a lot of us are saying, we think that way, is we feel distant from God sometimes. We feel like we're not as close to God sometimes as we do in others. But the truth is, if you know Jesus, if your identity is in Christ and Christ alone, you can't arrive and try to get closer. You've already arrived. What you and I are called to do is not to try to arrive closer to God, but to abide in Christ. And so when Peter says we're to grow up into salvation, what we don't need to hear there is, well, I've got, I'm over here and I've got to work myself up to get closer to God. No, the reason we're to long and desire for the grace that he's given us is because it helps me remember who I am and helps me grow in the grace and the knowledge of the God who saved me. Here's the point, though. When you and I actively pursue Christ and his grace and have a need for that every day, that weans me off of pursuing sin. When I pursue Christ, when I come to him every day and say, God, I need your grace, not just when I first came to know you, I need your power in my life today. And when I long for that, when I pursue that, it begins to weaken my desire for sin. This is the connection between verses 1 and 2. The way to put off all these sins that he lists in verse 1 is to long for God's grace that he talks about in verse 2. It's like any kind of eating or diet plan that you would come together with. The, the, the way to get healthy is not just to stop eating the wrong food, right? I'm going to say no to ice cream and no to pizza and no to all these things. I'm not going to eat them. That's only half the equation, right? I have to replace these things with the right food, right? I've got to replace the things that I know are wrong for me to eat with the things that I know they're going to make me healthy, 
In the same way, the way to wean ourselves off of sin is not just by saying, I'm not going to do those things and then stare at them. Because if you stare at that ice cream long enough, what are you going to do? You're going to eat it. I know you Baptists out there. You're going to eat it. What you have to do is you have to say, I'm not going to do that. I'm turning and I'm going to replace these hungers and these desires with the right thing. This is the principle Peter's putting forward to us. The way to wean ourselves off of sin is to long for the grace that God's given us. Now, some of your translations, I know you read this in your Bibles, were a little bit different than mine. Some of your translations said, verse 2, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk of the word. Now, that's actually not there in the original language. That's an assumption the translators are making, that it's a consistent theme from verses 22 through 25 in chapter 1, which were all about the word, that Peter's continuing to talk about that. The ESV, the translation I'm reading from, doesn't use that, but I do think it's an important concept because what we're saying is the primary way God's grace is given to me, the primary way his nourishment is brought into my life is through his word. The word of God is how God not only saves me, verses 22 through 25, born again, purified, but the word of God is also how God sustains me. So I want you to do something for me. I want you to look at your Bible. Don't look at me for a second. I want everyone to look down at your Bible. And I want you just in your mind to ask and answer this question. What do you see when you look at your Bible? What do you see when you look at this thing on your phone or laying in your lap? Do you see just a guidebook? Is it just a book of stories and historical facts? Or is what you're looking at actually the way God has planned to talk to you, to spend time with you, and to not only save you, but sustain you? Look up at me. I want you to know that what you're holding in your lap or what you're handling with your phone is God's plan for not only saving you, but sustaining you. See, what's great about grace, guys, what's so incredible and so amazing about the grace of God is that he not only forgives me of my past, present, and future sins, but the grace of God enters my life and through his word begins to repair me. I don't know if you've thought about this, but some of the sins from your past, some of the sins that some of you are committing right now that you know are wrong, that you need to stop, some of the sins that people have committed towards you, family members, parents, other people that have hurt you, those have impact on your life. Those impact the way you view the world. Those impact your attitudes and your relationships. And what we need to recognize about grace is that grace is not just the forgiveness of the penalty in the future. I don't go to hell. I get to go to heaven. But grace is also the way God repairs us from the impact of sin right now. So some of us feel shame, right? We feel embarrassment for sin in our lives or sin that's been done to us. Can I tell you what the grace of God can do in your life? The grace of God can take those things that you're ashamed about that you want to keep in the dark and the grace of God can show you that God still loves you, that he still cares for you, 
things people have said to you, things people have done to you that have hurt you. God has a plan to not let those things define you, but he can take those and bring those into the light of his grace and show you that not only does he still love you in spite of some of those things, but that he has a plan to use those things for your good and for God's glory. To move you from being ashamed of things that have happened to you or things that have been done to you to being thankful that God saved you from those things. The grace of God is so incredible because it not only saves us from something, it saves us for something, and part of what God saves us for is repairing us. Can I tell you, in my life as a 34-year-old, there are things that I've done in my past that it has taken 10, 15, 20 years for God to repair me of. Things that, that if I were to bring them up or to talk about them are painful even now for me to discuss them, but they're things that God, by His grace and His mercy, is saying, those things don't define you, Spencer. Those things don't have to be things you're ashamed of. Those things I've not only redeemed you from and forgiven you, those are things that you can step into the light with and say, I am who I am and by God's grace I've been forgiven. There's a warning, though, that Paul, uh, Peter ends with in this passage. He tells us the word of God not only saves us and sustains us, but he does give a warning in verse 3, and with this will be done. He says this, and this is an important first word in verse 3. He says, if... If, indeed, you have tasted that the Lord is good. Everything up until now, he said, he's made assumptions about the people he's writing to, that they're believers, they're followers of Jesus. But here he gives a warning for people to consider this important question. Have I ever truly encountered the grace of this God that we're talking about? Have I ever truly encountered, have I ever really tasted the kindness of a God who would give me new life? What he's referring to is this. Has there been a moment in your life when you've crossed the line of faith? I didn't really go over this in detail, but he said it earlier in verse 22. Has there been a submission of your life to the truth of God's word? Until you and I come to know this Savior that we're writing about and speaking about, all the things that we've talked about with grace are impossible. So what do we need to do? If you're here today and you've never experienced the grace and goodness of God, God calls you and I to repent. That's to turn from our sin, to turn from our disobedience, and instead to trust Christ. To reject the idea that I'm the main character and support the idea that God is the main character and that his kingdom is being established in this world. And the way I participate in that kingdom is by trusting the sweet Savior who died in my place for my sin. That's what we'd hold out to you today. If you're not a Christian, if you don't know Christ, what Peter calls us to consider is if you've not tasted that, what you need to do is to taste the kindness of the Lord for the very first time. But for those of you that are Christians, I think it's appropriate that we end with verse 3 because we, in a sense, are going to taste the kindness of the Lord this morning through remembering the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is our time to remember what God has done for us. It's important for me to quickly clarify what I don't mean from verse 3 is that this somehow turns into the body and blood of Christ. We don't believe that. We believe that primarily this is a time to remember. It's a memorial of what God has done for us. But wrapped up in that time of remembrance is you and I spending some time evaluating this simple question. Lord, 
am I really thankful for what you've done for me? God, am I really, really smitten with what you've done for me? Because I'll tell you this, until you and I continue to grow in our thankfulness for what God has done for us here, we will struggle in all of our relationships here. Peter says in these verses, we're to be who we are by loving one another and by pursuing Christ. Would you please pray with me and then we'll have our time of the supper. God, we thank you and we give you praise and honor and adoration for your goodness and grace in our lives. And God, I thank you that your word is crystal clear about how your grace works, about your mercy and kindness towards us. And God, I pray that if there's anyone here who has not tasted of the kindness that you offer them, that today would be the day of salvation. That today would be the day they receive your kindness and mercy for the first time. God, I pray that you'd open their eyes to see their need for you. They would repent and trust Jesus for salvation. God, for those of us that do know Christ, that do know him as Savior and Lord, I pray for this time that as we remember his sacrifice, that we would do so with grateful hearts and that we would once again recommit ourselves to what Christ has called us to do and to be. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.